Chapter Eleven, Part Eight of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Eleven, Columbia, South Carolina, Part Eight. June Twenty Eighth, Victory, Victory heads every telegram now. One reads it on the bulletin board. Footnote: The first battle of the Chickahominy fought on June Twenty Seventh, eighteen sixty-two. It is better known as the Battle of Gaines Mill or Cold Harbor. It was participated in by a part of Lee's army and a part of McClellan's, and its scene was about eight miles from Richmond. End footnote. It is the anniversary of the Battle of Fort Moultrie. The enemy went off so quickly, I wonder if it was not a trap laid for us to lead us away from Richmond, to some place where they can manage to do us more harm. And now comes the list of killed and wounded. Victory does not seem to soothe sore hearts. Mrs. Haskell has five sons before the enemy's illimitable cannon. Mrs. Preston, too. McClellan is routed, and we have twelve thousand prisoners. Prisoners? My God, and what are we to do with them? We can't feed our own people. For the first time since Joe Johnston was wounded at Seven Pines, we may breathe freely. We were so afraid of another general, or a new one. Stonewall cannot be everywhere, though he comes near it. Magruder did splendidly at Big Bethel. It was a wonderful thing how he played his ten thousand before McClellan like fireflies and utterly deluded him. It was partly due to the Manassas scare that we gave them. They will never be foolhardy again. Now we are throwing up our caps for R. E. Lee. We hope from the Lees what the first sprightly running at Manassas could not give. We do hope there will be no ifs. Ifs have ruined us. Shiloh was a victory if Albert Sidney Johnston had not been killed. Seven Pines, if Joe Johnston had not been wounded. The ifs bristle like porcupines. That victory at Manassas did nothing but send us off in a fool's paradise of conceit, and it roused the manhood of the northern people. For very shame, they had to move up. A French man-of-war lies at the wharf at Charleston to take off French subjects when the bombardment begins. William Mazick writes that the enemy's gunboats are shelling and burning property up and down the Santee River. They raise the white flag, and the negroes rush down on them. Planters might as well have let these negroes be taken by the council to work on the fortifications. A letter from my husband. Richmond, June twenty-nine, eighteen sixty-two. My dear Mary, for the last three days I have been a witness of the most stirring events of modern times. On my arrival here, I found the government so absorbed in the great battle pending that I found it useless to talk of the special business that brought me to this place. As soon as it is over, which will probably be tomorrow, I think that I can easily accomplish all that I was sent for. I have no doubt that we can procure another general and more forces, etc. The President and General Lee are inclined to listen to me, and to do all they can for us. General Lee is vindicating the high opinion I have ever expressed of him, and his plans and executions of the last great fight will place him high in the role of really great commanders. The fight on Friday was the largest and fiercest of the whole war, some sixty thousand or seventy thousand, with great preponderance on the side of the enemy. Ground, numbers, armament, etc., were all in favor of the enemy, but our men and generals were superior. The higher officers and men behaved with a resolution and dashing heroism that have never been surpassed in any country or in any age. Our line was three times repulsed by superior numbers, and superior artillery impregnably posted. Then Lee, assembling all his generals to the front, 
told them that victory depended on carrying the batteries and defeating the army before them, ere night should fall. Should night come without victory, all was lost, and the work must be done by the bayonet. Our men then made a rapid and irresistible charge, without powder, and carried everything. The enemy melted before them, and ran with the utmost speed, though of the regulars of the Federal Army. The fight between the artillery of the opposing forces was terrific and sublime. The field became one dense cloud of smoke, so that nothing could be seen but the incessant flash of fire. They were within sixteen hundred yards of each other, and it rained storms of grape and canister. We took twenty-three pieces of their artillery, many small arms, and small ammunition. They burned most of their stores, wagons, etc. The victory of the second day was full and complete. Yesterday there was little or no fighting, but some splendid maneuvering, which has placed us completely around them. I think the end must be decisive in our favor. We have lost many men and many officers. I hear Alex Haskell and young McMahon are among them, as well as a son of Dr. Trezevant. Very sad indeed. We are fighting again today. We'll let you know the result as soon as possible. We'll be at home sometime next week. No letter from you yet. With devotion, yours, James Chestnut. A telegram from my husband of June twenty-ninth from Richmond. Was on the field, saw it all. Things satisfying so far. Can hear nothing of John Chesnut. He is in Stuart's command. Saw Jack Preston. Safe so far. No reason why we should not bag McClellan's army or cut it to pieces. From four to six thousand prisoners already. Dr. Gibbs rushed in like a whirlwind to say we were driving McClellan into the river. June 30th. First came Dr. Trezevant, who announced Burnett Rett's death. No, no, I have just seen the bulletin board. It was Grimke Rett's. When the doctor went out, it was added, Howell Trezevant's death is there, too. The doctor will see it as soon as he goes down to the board. The girls went to see Lucy Trezevant. The doctor was lying, still as death, on a sofa with his face covered. July 1st. No more news. It is settled down into this. The general battle, the decisive battle, has to be fought yet. Edward Chevis, only son of John Chevis, killed. His sister kept crying, Oh, mother, what shall we do? Edward is killed. But the mother sat dead still, white as a sheet, never uttering a word or shedding a tear. Are our women losing the capacity to weep? The father came today, Mr. John Chevis. He has been making infernal machines in Charleston to blow up Yankee ships. While Mrs. McCord was telling me of this terrible trouble in her brother's family, someone said, Decca's husband died of grief. Stuff and nonsense, silly sentiment, folly. If he is not wounded, he is alive. His brother, John, may die of that shattered arm in this hot weather. Alex will never die of a broken heart. Take my word for it. July 3rd. Mim says she feels like sitting down, as an Irish woman does at a wake, and howling night and day. Why did U.G. let McClellan slip through his fingers? Arrived at Mrs. McMahon's at the wrong moment. Mrs. Bartow was reading to the stricken mother an account of the death of her son. The letter was written by a man who was standing by him when he was shot through the head. "'My God,' he said. That was all, and he fell dead. James Taylor was color-bearer. He was shot three times before he gave in. Then he said, as he handed the colors to the man next him, "'You see, I can't stand it any longer,' and dropped stone dead. He was only seventeen years old. 
if anything can reconcile me to the idea of a horrid failure after all efforts to make good our independence of Yankees, it is Lincoln's proclamation freeing the Negroes. Especially yours, Messieurs, who write insults to your governor and council, dated from Clarendon. Three hundred of Mr. Walter Blake's Negroes have gone to the Yankees. Remember, that recalcitrant patriot's property on two legs may walk off without an order from the council to work on fortifications. Have been reading the Potiphar Papers by Curtis. Can this be a picture of New York socially? If it were not for this hard war, how nice it would be here. We might lead such a pleasant life. This is the most perfectly appointed establishment. Such beautiful grounds, flowers, and fruits. Indeed, all that heart could wish. Such delightful dinners, such pleasant drives, such jolly talks, such charming people. But this horrid war poisons everything. July 5th. Drove out with Mrs. Constitution Brown, who told us the story of Ben McCulloch's devotion to Lucy Gwynne. Poor Ben McCulloch, another dead hero. Called at the Tognos and saw no one. No wonder. They say a Seely Togno was to have been married to Grimke Rett in August, and he is dead on the battlefield. I had not heard of the engagement before I went there. July 8th. Gunboat captured on the Santee. So much the worse for us. We do not want any more prisoners, and next time they will send a fleet of boats, if one will not do. The governor sent me Mr. Chestnut's telegram, with a note saying, I regret the telegram does not come up to what we had hoped might be as to the entire destruction of McClellan's army. I think, however, the strength of the war, with its ferocity, may now be considered as broken. Table Talk Today this war was undertaken by us to shake off the yoke of foreign invaders, so we consider our cause righteous. The Yankees, since the war has begun, have discovered it is to free the slaves that they are fighting, so their cause is noble. They also expect to make the war pay. Yankees do not undertake anything that does not pay. They think we belong to them. We have been good milk cows, milked by the tariff, or skimmed. We let them have all of our hard earnings. We bear the ban of slavery. They get the money. Cotton pays everybody who handles it, sells it, manufactures it, but rarely pays the man who grows it. Second-hand, the Yankees received the wages of slavery. They grew rich. We grew poor. The receiver is as bad as the thief. That applies to us, too, for we received the savages they stole from Africa and brought to us in their slave ships. As with the Egyptians, so it shall be with us. If they let us go, it must be across a red sea, but one made red by blood. July 10th. My husband has come. He believes from what he heard in Richmond that we are to be recognized as a nation by the crowned heads across the water at last. Mr. Davis was very kind. He asked him to stay at his house, which he did, and went every day with General Lee and Mr. Davis to the battlefield as a sort of amateur aide to the president. Likewise, they admitted him to the informal cabinet meetings at the President's house. He is so hopeful now that it is pleasant to hear him, and I had not the heart to stick the small pins of Yaden and Pickens in him yet a while. Public opinion is hot against U.G. and Magruder for McClellan's escape. Dr. Gibbs gave me some letters picked up on the battlefield. One signed, Laura, tells her lover to fight in such a manner that no Southerner can ever talk Yankees again with cowardice. She speaks of a man at home whom she knows, who is still talking of his intention to seek the bubble reputation at the cannon's mouth. Miserable coward, she writes. I will never speak to him again. 
It was a relief to find one silly young person filling three pages with a description of her new bonnet, and the bonnet still worn by her rival. Those fiery Joan of Arc damsels who goad on their sweethearts bode us no good. Rachel Lyons was in Richmond, hand in glove with Mrs. Greenhow. Why not? So handsome, so clever, so angelically kind, says Rachel of the Greenhow, and she offers to matronize me. Mrs. Phillips, another beautiful and clever Jewess, has been put into prison again by Beast Butler because she happened to be laughing as a Yankee funeral procession went by. Captain B. told of John Chestnut's pranks. Johnny was riding a powerful horse, captured from the Yankees. The horse dashed with him right into the Yankee ranks. A dozen Confederates galloped after him, shouting, "'Stuart! Stuart!' The Yankees, mistaking this mad charge for Stuart's cavalry, broke ranks and fled. Daredevil Camden boys ride like Arabs. Mr. Chestnut says he was riding with the President when Colonel Brown, his aide, was along. The general commanding rode up and, bowing politely, said, Mr. President, am I in command here? Yes. Then I forbid you to stand here under the enemy's guns. Any exposure of a life like yours is wrong, and this is useless exposure. You must go back. Mr. Davis answered, Certainly, I will set an example of obedience to orders. Discipline must be maintained. But he did not go back. Mr. Chestnut met the Haynes, who had gone on to nurse their wounded son, and found him dead. They were standing in the corridor of the Spotswood. Although Mr. Chestnut was staying at the President's, he retained his room at the hotel, so he gave his room to them. Next day, when he went back to his room, he found that Mrs. Hayne had thrown herself across the foot of the bed and never moved. No other part of the bed had been touched. She got up and went back to the cars, or was led back. He says these heartbroken mothers are hard to face. End of chapter 11, part 8